And like I was 15 and clueless. And he looked at me and he said, fire away. So I asked him a few questions and I scribbled down as many notes as I could, remembered the rest of it, immediately went home. I had a little rickety old secondhand typewriter and I bashed together a few paragraphs and it appeared in the paper the week later. Uh, someone took a picture of me with Jack and those two people changed my life. Jimmy Gann for giving me work experience and Jack Charlton for giving me an interview. And after that, I thought, wow, this is what I want to do with life. For very many years, correspondent Enda Brady was a regular presence on Sky News, reporting on major stories in Britain, Ireland and around the world. He's left them now for the international wing of Turkish radio and television, TRT. He's also dedicating time to running marathons, giving talks and also doing media training. With Sky News, politics, wars, disasters, sport, entertainment and crime were all part of Enda's beat. Always there, always clear, assertive and concise in his contributions. And always you wondered, where in Ireland does this guy come from? Enda Brady joins us now from London. I have to admit, I got it wrong. I had you down as a dub. Not so. Yeah, everyone gets that wrong, Sean. No, I'm from Enniscorthy, County Wexford, but I spent a huge amount of time with my grandparents in Wicklow, just south of Bray. And I had that accent. It's stayed with me since probably the age of five or six. Yeah, I still think you know, Wicklow people don't sound like you sound. I think I, I, I had you down as a as a, a Drimna Castle boy, funnily enough, uh, like the Morans and other famous people like that. No, I get lost in Dublin, Sean, to be honest with you. People look at me if I ask directions because they think, is this fella pulling my leg? Um, but I, I really don't know my way around Dublin at all. But whatever, wherever the accent came from, it's stuck. It's stayed right. with me and now, uh, you, look, you it's almost... done me no harm. You've always come across on air as full of energy and resilience. And then we discover you're a marathon man, quite literally. I'm just wondering which trained you for which. Did the marathon running prepare you or make you fit so that you'd be able to do those endless appearances on Sky on a running story? And, you know, it's rolling news 24 hours a day. So how did that how did those two things match? I think it's all about resilience, really, and realising that, you know, breaking your day down into blocks of what is achievable and blocks of work. And it's the same as running a marathon. A marathon is 42.2 kilometres. And, you know, you don't set off thinking, oh, my God, how am I going to get to 42.2 today? You break it down into little chunks. And that's what I used to do with broadcasting. You know, some days at Sky, you'd work maybe 16, 17 hours, and then you're back up again the next day at half four or 5 a.m. You could be all over the world. And um, I don't know. I just, I just have energy and resilience to burn and long may it continue. And just with Sky, I mean, that would be a 16 or a 17 hour day where you would be on on a programme at least once an hour or maybe even more frequently. Yeah, sometimes you do two hits in the hour, then you do an evening package or a report, as we call it. You'd also be required to write for the website, you know, if you were doing a big court case or if you were abroad, an earthquake or somewhere that you were the only correspondent there, if you had the exclusive. So you'd be writing You'd be scripting, you'd be reading in between, you'd be doing your interviews, talking to members of the public. If there had been a big incident, you'd be finding eyewitnesses. So it was wonderful work, really. Just every every minute of every day was accounted for at Sky. And I think the, the Sky way of doing things was every little cog in the chain fits together and every little cog knows what it's meant to be doing every hour of the day. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, it was wonderful. 17 years and I learned a huge amount from the best people around, really. 
I, I'm sure you did, but I mean, just the relentlessness of it, even as you describe it, you just wonder how long can people sustain that? And you obviously gave it 17 years. And I mean, not just yourself, but people like Adam Bolton, Kay Burley and the rest of them, Alex Thompson and others. I mean, it's just the sheer relentlessness of it. I, I'd imagine you didn't go anywhere without having a packed suitcase in your car because you didn't know where you were going to be next. Yes, yeah, so you get into a routine. Now, I had two suitcases in the car, Sean, so how I lived. I would have a big suitcase with warm weather clothing and then kind of shorter sleeve shirts, polos, shorts, variety of footwear, and then a much smaller suitcase. So if the call came and I was in the newsroom and they said, right, you're heading off somewhere extremely cold, I would pack, I would go to the big suitcase and then just rifle through it and get the kind of warmer items I needed. Or indeed, if we ended up in Africa or the Middle East or Iraq or somewhere, I would dress accordingly. So, I, And then you have your toiletry bag, which stays the same, you know, it's the, the world over. And then off you go and you just kind of ring home, tell your family, right, um, see you when I see you. And that was always difficult because you never knew when you were coming back. What was the longest you were away for? Probably I'd say, oh, the Russia World Cup in 2018. That was six weeks. I mean, I actually learned Russian. <laughs> I was Honestly, I was there so long. And, you, you know, it's amazing how... You have to adapt or if you need something done and nobody speaks English that, you know, you will you will learn those words. And I remember one morning after a few days, we needed uh, laundry done. And the word for uh, laundry is steer can. And everyone else was complaining about not being able to get clothes washed and what have you. And within four hours, I had found a lady who was very happy to do all my laundry for a very, to us, small amount of money. This was in rural Russia. Um wonderful place, amazing people. And it was a great six weeks. And it was such a privilege, you know, traveling all over these towns and cities that I couldn't find on a map uh, to follow soccer and to interview amazing people like Zlatan Ibrahimovic stands out. That was a great summer, 2018. Take me back to where it all began, because you're the ultimate local boy makes good. It began uh, in a very modest way, uh, but you took your chances, saw your opportunities, beginning with the Enescorti Echo. Yes, and I'm forever grateful to a man in Enniscorthy who was the editor of the paper. Jimmy Gann is his name, and he's a great journalist in Wexford, great broadcaster. And I, through my dad, my dad was a detective Garda, and I think I, I pretty much just hounded my dad to see if he could ask someone for work experience. And my dad ran into Jimmy one day in the pub, and Jimmy said, send him in. And I went in for a couple of days and I spent those two days making tea, coffee, getting sandwiches for Jimmy. And yeah, after a couple of days, Jimmy came to me and he said, you love soccer, don't you? And I said, I, I do. Yeah. And he said, look, um, a fella's pulled out. We're covering this local match for us this weekend. He said, I need six paragraphs. You need to get the team sheet spelt correctly and you need the score. The score has to be correct. The facts have to be correct. And and that was, so I was about 15, I think, summer 1991, maybe. And I went on work experience with Jimmy and it changed my life because on that work experience then, would you believe it, uh, Jack Charlton came to County Wexford fishing in the River Slaney just around Bunclody. And I ended up in Redmond's pub in Bunclody. Jack had gone in there for sandwiches and tea after his fishing trip. And I obviously couldn't afford a tape recorder or anything like that. And the days of dictaphones and mobile phones didn't exist. So I had a copy of his book, his Italian 90 diary and a pen. And I initially went in with the hope of getting an autograph. And then when he was signing the autograph, I said to him, I'd love to be a journalist. I said, can I ask you a couple of questions? 
And like I was 15 and clueless. And he looked at me and he said, fire away. So I asked him a few questions and I scribbled down as many notes as I could. Remember the rest of it. Immediately went home. I had a little rickety old secondhand typewriter and I bashed together a few paragraphs and it appeared in the paper the week later. Someone took a picture of me with Jack and those two people changed my life. Jimmy Gann for giving me work experience and Jack Charlton for giving me an interview. And after that, I thought, wow, this is what I want to do with life. Far from clueless. No wonder Sky sent you to the ends of the earth. Uh, you obviously were a great one to see and take uh, opportunities. How did you end up in the UK? I mean, you didn't actually go to university in Ireland, did you? Well, I couldn't get in, to be honest. I got five honours. I did my intercert in the CBS in Enniscorthy, and then I did the leaving cert in St. Peter's College in Wexford. And I got five honours and two passes. But, I mean, I might as well have been barking at the moon in terms of getting into DCU to do journalism. The points were just so difficult to get. I probably didn't work hard enough, if hand on heart. And that is a regret of mine. And then I ended up, OK, I thought, right, can't get a journalism degree in Ireland. Let's see if I can get into England. So I went to the University of Central Lancashire in Preston, which turns out to be the best journalism course in Britain. And what really stood me in good stead was all the echo articles from Enniscorthy so I had a body of work that I was able to present to them and say, OK, I'm not, you know, academic results there aren't straight A's, but I can do the job if you give me a chance. And amazingly, they took me in. Uh, I did got an honours degree in journalism. They had a link up with the Press Association, which is like a wires news agency. And I went on work experience with them in the second year. And they sent me out, believe it or not, to Elton John was doing something. Then they sent me to talk to Michael Jackson. And this was like mind blowing for me. Coming from Enniscorthy, these people you only ever see on TV or in pop videos. Were you overawed being in the presence of such iconic figures? Yes, I have to say. Michael Jackson, I couldn't believe it. I mean, he looked at me and I remember he had, he had amazing brown eyes. He he was just such a presence to be around. Elton John, the day I met him, he was in a really bad mood. Uh, things weren't good. I don't know what was going on, but I was reminded years later watching that Tantrums and Tiara's documentary. I got him on a, a bad day. I'd love to talk to him again. Um, and then, you know, not long after we met, he played piano at Diana's funeral and held it together. I mean, a truly remarkable human being. And also in Preston, I mean, you were close to a famous football club, uh, Preston North End. Yes. So I worked on the turnstiles on Saturdays. I, I needed to put myself through college, obviously. And I had a little job there. And the deal was that you did a few hours on the turnstile, three hours, they give you 15 quid cash and a ticket back in if you wanted. So the race was always to tally up your money with how many people went through the turnstile, get the cash to the ticket office. It's all changed now. It's all computerized and tickets. And, you know, the, the soccer world has moved on, like, thankfully. So I'd race back to the cash office, tally up the money, they'd give you a ticket back in. And I loved Preston North End. Three wonderful seasons working at that club. They let me write for the match programme. I interviewed Tom Finney. David Beckham came and made his league debut, would you believe it or not, in February 95, I think it was. Or the 95 season, certainly. It was possibly was it February 96. Beckham came anyway. It was just wonderful to be around the club and to see these professional athletes, how they live, how they train. And then you went to work on a pretty well-known national newspaper, well, at least a daily newspaper in Yorkshire, Yorkshire Post. Yeah, so I did my year with the Press Association and then I got a bit frustrated because you do all these interviews, but you'd never see your name in the paper. 
and it was like a wires agency. So your interview, your quotes, anything clever you thought of, someone else from the Guardian or the Times or the Telegraph would basically rip it off. And, you know, I'd be reading my words with Sean O'Rourke's name on it. And that <laughs> used to annoy me. So I thought, right, we need to go join a newspaper. So I put some feelers out and I ended up in Leeds. And I joined the Yorkshire Evening Post newspaper and I had two wonderful years up there. I won Young Journalist of the Year in Britain. That was a fantastic buzz. Yeah, and it just opened so many doors and made some lifelong friends up there. The guy I used to live with in a flat in Leeds, Andrew Farmer is his name. Uh, He's a broadcaster as well. And we are lifelong friends. He was my best man. He's my son's godfather. And um, yeah, just blessed. Absolutely blessed. So Sky, when did that door open? So I left the newspaper world. That that Young Journalist of the Year award kind of got me in with ITV. I did a few years in the regions with ITV Meridian and ITV Central. And then I went for a job interview with Sky News. And the two men who were doing the interview, would you believe it, going back now, 2005? It was summer 2005. My wife was expecting our first child. And her due date was the day of the interview with Sky. And the guy, when I went in, Sky's a fairly kind of tough environment. So I sat down and he said to me, he looked me in the eye and he said, we're interviewing 15 people for this job. He said, tell me something about you. I'll remember a close of play today. So I took out my mobile phone and I said to him, you see this? And he said, what about it? I said, my wife is expecting our baby today, our first child. So this phone is switched off. I said, by the time this interview is done, I could be a dad. I said, if you meet any of the other 14 people you meet today, and I said, they have a better reason and they're more driven to they want to come here and work for you. I said, give them the job. Yeah. Did the other 14 get interviewed after that? I mean, that was well, quite a quite a, quite a line, quite an answer. Well, no, I, I, I tell you, Sean, he was so kind of abrupt with what he said. I thought, there's no way I'm walking out of here without getting a job at Sky. So it worked. And I got home about an hour later and the phone rang and he said, when can you start? And I said, I'll start as soon as the baby's born. And that was that. Then it was just onto this, I won't call it a treadmill, but there's something relentless about working for Sky. Yeah, there is. It takes a certain type of person. I mean, you'd watch, you can see the people who will fit in and get on and you can immediately see the kind of prima donnas who come in and think they can do it and are gone within six weeks, four weeks. I think one day was the shortest I saw. And, you know, you end up becoming, I think, a good judge of character because the, the teamwork and the work ethic and fitting in and being able to deliver in the strangest of environments takes, I don't know, it takes something deep inside someone, great resilience. And look, I, I loved it. And I learned so much every single day. And it has great credibility as well, Enda, as a, a news organisation, much more so, for instance, it's much more respected, at least you know, on this side of the Atlantic than, say, Fox News, which was also part of the Murdoch empire. Yeah, look, the Murdochs are out of Sky, what, since uh, September 2018? And I I only remember it because I ran a marathon in Moscow that day and the company got sold and we had a lot of shares in it. So it was a beautiful day. But look, the Murdoch family, I never met any of them. He visited the site twice that I was aware of in 17 years. And good luck to him. You know, I watched Succession. I'd say he was fairly cross about the TV show Succession, which was apparently loosely based on his family. But look, Sky was a tough environment. 
But hand on heart, I never saw any interference from the Murdoch family. I never heard any political phone calls. And I'm friends with the guy who ran it. John Riley is his name. He He's retired now. He never got any phone calls from anyone trying to interfere. But I would imagine there were a lot of people who tried to influence him and failed. It's based in in London, obviously, headquartered there, where you have the BBC with all its massive resources, it's all its credibility, all its traditions. And Sky, I think it has to be said, more than holds its own with you know BBC News, International News or BBC World. With nothing like the resources. So I used to laugh. We'd go to court cases. There'd be me and a cameraman. And if you were lucky, a producer. And you go to a big court case and there'd be maybe 12 or 13 people there from the BBC. And the camera crew would be replaced at lunchtime because they were all unionised. And, you know, the BBC working environment to me seemed quite soft. And we'd still be there. If it was a huge court case, you'd be required to do a live at 10 o'clock at night. I live in rural Oxfordshire. So you'd be outside the Old Bailey or the High Court at 10 o'clock at night. And when they say alive in the 10, it could be like quarter past 10. And then you're driving home. You wouldn't get back till midnight. You're back up again at 5 a.m. to go again on another story, possibly in another country. It's no life, though, some people might say. Look, uh, a lot of my family have said that to me over the years, and it was part of the reason, a small part of the reason that I left. Um, It's addictive, though, Sean. That's the thing. It's an addictive life. Like being a war correspondent. Of course, there were elements of that as well to your work. Yeah, I went to Iraq a couple of times, but look, I would never, ever say I'm a war correspondent, nor would I ever want to be a war correspondent. Life is too beautiful, Sean. I have children. I run. I love seeing places. I love going places. Thank God I have two legs and two arms that work and half a brain. Um, You just keep going. But like war correspondents take extraordinary risks. And, you know, that's that's not for me. The other thing, I mean, you hit Sky and you hit uh, national and international journalism at an extraordinarily interesting time. I mean, coming up to the the, the, the the crash in the UK and all that flowed from that and all that still flows from it and in regard to the state of British politics. I mean, you couldn't have been there at a better time or a more interesting time. Yeah, there's always something going on somewhere. Look, the day that there's no news anywhere will never happen because, you know, we look what happens in Ireland and what happens in the UK and then there's something big in Europe or there'll be an avalanche in Italy or an earthquake in Morocco. The whole Trump saga that just never seems to stop in the United States. There's always something somewhere. But I have to say, yeah, every day, every week, you you meet some of the most extraordinary people on earth. And it's like... Someone said to me the other day, is there anyone you haven't met? And I had to think and I said, Elvis. And I just laughed. <laughs> but I would have loved to have met him. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there were some some happy stories as well. I mean, I'm thinking particularly about the, the Olympics in 2012 in London. I mean, that was a wonderful time, I'd say, to be working in London. But also, I, I know from experience, to visit London as well. I mean, the sort of it was almost as though English people overnight became far more friendly and less distant than you would have experienced them before. Yeah. London 2012 for me was incredible because... Don't get me wrong, there are a lot of problems in the UK right now, and London certainly has its issues, as does any big city like Dublin and anywhere else in the world, Paris, New York, wherever. You know, cities have their problems. For the Olympics in 2012, I felt everyone came together. People were putting on their best show. People were trying their hardest. People were picking litter. People were cleaning walls. People were welcoming and friendly. And those games were just beautiful. I mean, I remember that Super Saturday 
when Team GB won so many gold medals and people like Mo Farah winning the 5,000 metres and the 10,000 metres. And I know Mo, believe it or not, I've actually run with him. And, you know, fantastic spirit. And London 2012 was just amazing. And I remember, you know, as a child, I'd always wanted to win medals for Ireland. And unfortunately, I was never any good at anything. But the next best thing, Sean, is talking to the people who win the medals because you get to see how they do it and how they live. Yeah, we might as well talk now then about the sports people that you've met. You mentioned Mo Farah there um, and uh, many others. Who are the ones who have impressed you most? I mean, would it would it be a marathon runner by any chance? So Elliot Kipchoge is the Olympic gold medalist. He has back-to-back gold medals and in 2024 he will be going for an unprecedented third gold medal. So he's from Kenya. Now, I ran across Kenya in summer, it was September 2018. I ran five ultra marathons in five days with a rucksack and there was 45 amazing ultra runners in that race from all over the world and I finished 15th. So I was very proud of that. And on the night before the final race, you have to carry your food in your rucksack and a sleeping bag and a little medical kit and like a half a toothbrush and a small kind of, everything is weight related. You're trying to slim down the weight. But after four days of running across the savannah at altitude in Kenya, in heat, you're pretty much broken up. And we were around the campfire and the race director, he came and he said, just so everyone knows, tomorrow at the finishing line, Elliot Kipchoge is coming down to speak to you. I couldn't believe it. I just could not believe the greatest runner in my mind of all time. And sure enough, got to the finishing line. I ran into his arms. I burst into tears. I I ripped the rucksack off because I'd had enough of it. 200 plus kilometers. I was broken. I was in tears. And he said to me, uh, he said, why are you crying? And he's such a beautiful man, Kipchoge. And I looked at him and I said, people like me should never meet people like you. And he turned to me and he said, my friend, no human is limited. And that became his catchphrase. And it's a Nike advertising campaign. And those words came out of his mouth to me on a hillside in Kenya in September 2018. And then a month later, he went and broke the world record in Berlin for the marathon. And I was there then. I did the commentary for Sky the day he ran under two hours in Vienna in 2019, I think it was. Um, just an amazing man. But Kipchoge would be a standout human being that I've met. And there's so many other people I admire, like A.P. McCoy, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, Tiger Woods I interviewed. Yeah, I, I'd imagine that wild horses will, won't or wouldn't be able to keep you away from Paris and the Olympics next year then, particularly for the marathon. So I'm trying to get a place in the marathon, believe it or not. Uh, but bear with me on this, Sean. It's not the <laughs> To represent Ireland, elite. no? Well, no, not to represent Ireland. That's Those days have gone and sadly were never going to happen. But the French, believe it or not, Sean, on the night of the actual marathon with the world-class elite runners, they're having a night marathon for amateurs. And you can get a place in it. There's an app and basically they're giving out bibs and places on a. It's almost like a lotto basis. So if you run a few kilometers every month, you go in the hat for a draw for a a race bib. And look, there's 20,024. That is the number of bibs. Uh, And I keep trying every month. So. But you talked about a few other guys there. I mean, Zlatan, for instance, Ibrahimovic, you met him, Was it that was in, in Moscow, and you, it, it didn't start well, but it ended okay, yeah? Yeah, this was a very funny story. So we were told 
I'm not going to give them publicity, but a very well-known credit card had hired him in for a day, okay? Did they have a visa? In Moscow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was told, you won't believe this, right? I was told that our interview, you've asked me loads of questions, Sean, you know, you know, you know, and I've asked a million questions over the years. Look, you know the deal. You ask people questions. So I was told in advance, you will ask Zlatan one question and it must contain a mention of visa. So I thought, this is preposterous. So these two PR women were from California. They didn't know who he was. They didn't follow football. And uh, they were quite disparaging, I felt, really, because given, you know, he's, he is an amazing athlete to still be going at the age he went to. Played for Barcelona, Ajax, Inter Milan, AC Milan, you name it. Zlatan did it. Scored wonderful goals and a real presence about the man. So sure enough, when he arrived anyway, he had Mino Raiola with him, who was his agent, who has since sadly passed away. Now, Raiola is Italian, even though he's born in uh, the Netherlands. Now, I speak good Italian because a cousin of mine from Longford actually spent all his life in Italy and I used to go visit him. So I got talking to Mino Raiola in Italian and he said to me, where are you from? And I said, I'm Irish. And he said, you know what? He said, I used to live in New York. He said, the Irish and the Italians. He said, we always got on. And we laughed. And he said, what's the problem? And I said, well, look, I said, I, it's ridiculous. I can't interview him ask one question and for it to mention a credit card. So they had a chat in Italian. Zlatan came over. We shook hands. We spoke in Italian. Fantastic fella. Big, strong presence of a man, like an absolute specimen of a man. Wonderful athlete. Very imposing. I'm six foot three. He must be six, six. I was looking up at him. We did the interview. It was brilliant. And then afterwards, I have been working on this idea for a book called Greatest Day. And I thought, you know what, as journalists, we interview people and you're always asking them, why did that not work out? Why, how did you fail this? Why did that go wrong? And I thought, imagine just a book of positivity where you ask people about the greatest day of their lives. So I said to Raiola, Zlatan left and he had like a trailer and a bodyguard and everything. So we went off into the trailer. Um, I said to Raiola, I'd like to ask him one question about the greatest day of his life from my book. She said, stand there, wait. So anyway, I got beckoned over. And Zlatan looked down at me, speaks in the third person. He said, Zlatan likes this. And I said, can I ask you the question? Yes. So I looked at him and I said, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, can I ask you about the greatest day of your life? And he said, greatest day of Zlatan's life was day Zlatan's mother buys Zlatan football boots at age six. And I thought, and that was it. And I thought, wow, what a wonder. I, I was expecting, you know, the overhead scissors kick from 40 yards against England. Scoring for Barcelona, you know, joining Ajax, joining AC Milan, his debut for Sweden. And it was the day his mother brought home football boots when he was six. Talk about being grounded and knowing where his roots were, quite literally. Other sports people that you've admired, dealt with and become friends with in some cases. I mean, you mentioned AP McCoy earlier. Liam Brady, Paul McGrath would be others as well. Yeah, I just I've always been a sports fan. And I think in Ireland... We've always punched above our weight, whether it's in the boxing ring, on the race course, on the soccer pitch. Liam was my boyhood hero, and I'm so happy. I met him over the years. We did interviews. We've become friends, and he's just such a character. You know, to have achieved what he did, go to Italy at a young age, win Serie A, back-to-back titles with Juventus, play for Sampdoria, play for Inter Milan. You know, anytime you book a hotel room in Italy with the surname Brady, if the man or woman behind the desk is of a certain age, they will speak and they will mention Liam and they will ask, are you related to Liam Brady? 
He's like a god in Italy. So Liam has become a great friend. We've done so many brilliant interviews and my prized possession. Liam, one day uh, I was around his house and he handed me a shirt and it was a Sampdoria jersey from 1984. And he just looked at me and he said, that's yours now, Enda. And I, I tears in my eyes driving home. I just couldn't believe it. I just thought, my God, what an amazing man. Paul McGrath lives in County Wexford. And Paul is, you know, well, nobody needs me to say what Paul means to Irish people. He's an absolute God and a beautiful man. And he's so happy in Wexford and everyone loves him and everyone protects him. And we often have coffee. He's and it a- makes me so proud that Paul is so happy in Wexford. He's mates with your sister as well. Yeah, so my sister Sinead is a great character. Sinead is a very special girl. Sinead was born brain damaged. And um, ah, she's just uh, a wonderful person. And Paul, yeah, it's great crack, you know, very funny. And Sinead has a great sense of humour. And Paul, yeah, he'll meet her for a coffee or take her out. And it's just, um, it's wonderful to see. And I'm very grateful for his friendship. And you mentioned uh, Tony McCoy at the start and, you know, he wouldn't be easily impressed by you telling him you were up at six o'clock to get your day going or even half five. Oh, no. AP McCoy is just a living legend and such a hardworking man. And I remember, I think the first interview I did with him was in West Berkshire, probably about 99, 2000. He was ripping up the record books. I mean, what he achieved in horse racing in Britain, in Ireland. Nobody has ever matched him. Champion jockey, 20 years on the spin. And it was really interesting for me. You know, I was 23 and I probably thought I knew it all. And then you go and you spend time around a guy like AP McCoy and you see how hard he's working, how intelligent he is, how much he's planning, what he's thinking. The work that went in, you know, these winners just didn't happen by accident. And, you know, an awful lot of people watch sport and they just think, oh, yeah, he's gifted. She's gifted. The work the relentless dedication, the pursuit of excellence. And then you get to know the person and you see how they live behind the scenes as well. AP McCoy does so much charity work and he's such a modest man that he never mentions it. He's not in the business of clicks and likes and subscribe. He is just a standout human being. And for me, he is the best of Ireland. You probably would say the same as well for, for other people, for instance. Were you in school with Des Bishop and then you got uh, friendly with uh, Ronan Keating as well? Yeah, the two fantastic fellas. Des, I did the Leaving Cert with Des in St. Peter's College. And look, I I have happy memories of St. Peter's College in Wexford. I'd say Des probably has less happy memories. He didn't particularly get on with some of the teachers there. And look, I really admire Des. And I envy him in that he has a great grasp of the Irish language that I don't have. And he's gone and made documentaries about it. He's very funny. Um, We've been to see him in London. He's been to my house here in Oxfordshire. And I have huge respect for Des and everything he has achieved since those days in St. Peter's College. But he was he was great fun to be in the same classroom as Ronan Keating. I got to know through doing interviews. And again, I would have been a fan of his music and, and the band Boys Own. Um, because when I went to England, having an Irish accent was not exactly great in 1993. And then these fellas from Dublin come along and overnight things started to change. It wasn't just Ronan Keating you were friendly with. You actually got to know the band and particularly around the time of that very sad uh, death of Stephen Gately. Yes, yeah, so I didn't know Stephen at all. Stephen was someone I had admired greatly. I loved how he lived his life, how proud he was of who he was his contribution and just struck me as a very 
beautiful soul and then to die at the age of 33. I mean, it was just such a terrible time. And I remember being in Dublin, there was the removal, then there was the funeral. And the fact that the other band members slept in the church the night before with Stephen's coffin because he was afraid of the dark. I was just so proud of them all. And I just thought, you know, it was just a terrible, terrible thing that happened. And then a few weeks later, obviously everyone's mourning and grieving. And I got a phone call asking me if I go to Dublin, sit down with the other band members, the surviving members of Boyzone, that they would only ever do one interview to talk about Stephen as a four-piece band, as they now were. And they wanted to do it with me. So I went to Dublin. We did the interview. Keith, Mikey, Shane and Ronan. And the interview lasted precisely one hour. And I've honestly, Sean, never seen so much love in one room for one person. And they all spoke very movingly. And people can think what they want. You know, I, I genuinely don't think that those guys get enough appreciation in Ireland. Shane Lynch, a lot of people would look at Shane. Shane's a big lump of a lad. Tattoos everywhere. Heart of gold. Would do anything for you. And Shane spoke so movingly about his friend Stephen. The same with Mikey. The same with Keith. And Ronan's just such a beautiful soul. And that interview will stay with me forever because the one thing that shone through was their love and affection and respect for Stephen Gately. And then after the interview and everything went out on TV, a letter arrived in London. And it was actually from the priest who said the funeral mass. And he asked if I could send some DVD copies of everything so that the family could watch because they'd heard so many people saying nice things and that was I've still got that letter and um, and that was a beautiful touch by the, the priest and my heartfelt respect and love to the Gately family and then I, I did interviews with Ronan over the years and I, I just admire him and again I think he's in the region of 12 million pounds sterling rage for breast cancer research that's in a, Ireland and the UK. That's a charity you support yourself when you're doing those marathons. I ran my first marathon for the Marie Keating Foundation because my mother got breast cancer the year before. And I thought I need to do something to put something back. So I raised a few bob for them, ran the Dublin Marathon. That was October 2012. And this year, 2024, I will be running my 50th marathon on the 7th of April in Paris. And my intention, my plan and what I will do is finish that marathon and again, raise a few bob for the Marie Keating Foundation. And a big shout out to Linda Keating and her team who do so much for women in Ireland with, with cancer. I, I can't end this uh, part of our conversation without asking you about Shane McGowan, who died recently. Uh, you had quite an encounter with Shane in a hotel in London. Is that right? Yeah, this is a lovely story, actually, Sean, and I'm, I'm glad you asked me about it. I'd fixed up an interview with Shane just ahead of his 50th birthday. So it would have been Christmas 2008. And we were at the Royal Garden Hotel in High Street, Kensington, in London. And Shane turned up. He sat down. It was all very Christmassy. And he was a, a, an extraordinary character to be around. Fiercely intelligent. Very, very well read. You know, everyone will remember legendary drinking sessions or how much crack he liked or, you know, you know just how, how big a party man he was. Shane McGowan, I found him to be very, very intelligent, very well read. So we were doing the interview and, you know, he, he he wasn't that bothered about the interview, if I'm honest. 
and I was trying my best to get news lines out of him and how he felt about turning 50. And, you know, a lot of people felt he wouldn't see 30 and then he saw 40 and now he was turning 50. He jumped up out of the seat. He looked out the window and he started waving and he was shouting at these fellas to come in. And I, I was thinking, what on earth is going on here? And in off the street walks Paddy Hill and Jerry Conlon. Paddy Hill from the Birmingham Six, Jerry Conlon from the Guildford Four. And they had Tesco plastic bags with their belongings in them. And they got very emotional when they saw Shane. Shane ordered tea and sandwiches, sat the two lads down. And it turns out they were visiting London for the weekend and they were staying with their solicitor, a woman called Gareth Pierce. Uh, again, truly remarkable woman played by Emma Thompson in the film uh, In the Name of the Father. So they were staying at Gareth Pierce's house. They got chatting. And, you know, as they left, they hugged Shane. One of them had a disposable camera and asked me to take a picture with Shane. I took the picture and to this day, I regret not asking, could I get a picture with Shane and Paddy and Jerry? And Jerry has since passed and Shane has now passed. And they left. And I was very curious because they, the two men were very emotional to see Shane. So anyway, he sat back down to do the interview. And I said, before we start rolling, Shane, I said, I said, why were the two lads so upset when they saw you? And he became very lucid and he said, we made a song for them. He said, have you not listened to Streets of Sorrow? And to my shame at that stage, uh, you know, you think of the Pogues, you think of Fiesta, Sally McLennan, Fairy Tale of New York, Rainy Night in Soho, those kind of songs. I said to him, no, I haven't, no. And he said, them. he said, well, the BBC banned it. He said, we made that song for them. The BBC banned it. He said, we played the hell out of it at festivals. He said it got played on Irish radio stations. It got played in America. And he said the money from that song went to their legal defence. So in a way, Shane McGowan and the Pogues, their story, they helped get those men out of prison, wrongly imprisoned for 14 years for something they didn't do. Terrible, terrible miscarriage of justice. They never saw the correct compensation from the UK government. And Shane had their back all those years ago and they never forgot it. And that was why they had tears in their eyes when they saw him. A good moment to ask you about being Irish then in Britain and in England. How has your own experience been? So you get some chippy remarks every now and then. And I think, you know, you have to understand, Sean, look, there's not a great level of education over here. And I think a lot of people have been brought up on a diet of two world wars and one World Cup and they see themselves as superior. And, you know, I often say to people, the one common factor and I don't, I don't want to get into being critical of people but one common factor over here the most successful people I know in the UK the richest happiest highest achieving people I know in the UK they've all got one common theme none of them are English so just think about that for a minute and I don't want to be critical but there is a thread here of kind of looking down on people and that migrants aren't welcome you go into the health service, if you're, anything is ever wrong with you and you end up at a hospital in the UK, you will be treated by a doctor from Pakistan, a nurse from India, a nurse from Nigeria, a woman from the Caribbean or an Irish nurse. You know, the health service is built on migrants. Irish people have built these towns and cities over here. And something stuck in my mind one day. I had a, a lower back problem and I went up to the GP and we're in rural Oxfordshire. And there was an elderly couple and he was on a, a walking frame and he kept looking at me and the doctor called his name and it was an Irish name. And as he got up to go in, he said, uh, he said, are you who I think you are? And so I laughed and I said, who do you think I am? He said, I see you on the news. I said, yeah, that's me. 
he looked at his wife and he said, when me and her come over here, he said, you'd ring up houses to get accommodation. He said they'd hear an Irish accent and they put the phone down. And he said, I turned the telly on now. And he says, and you know what I hear? People like you keep it up. And honestly, I, I had tears. He walked off on this walking frame to see the doctor and I'm sitting with lower back pain and I had tears coming down my face because I just thought, imagine that. You know, the Irish experience now, I think, is very, very different to what these incredible Irish people went through in the 50s and 60s. And still, uh, when you went to cover the World Cup that you spoke about just a little earlier in 2018, there wasn't a great response to having, having an Irishman reporting on the English football team. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. So, you know, you go on social media and, you know, you put out where you are, and what you're doing or the interview you've just done. So it started off with these kind of rabid... Um, right-wing lunatics in England and they'd copy in all the management of Sky questioning why there wasn't an English person doing it. And look, best of luck to them. I just found it. I wrote a piece actually and then then what happened was I put a tweet out. I'd been to see England training and Harry Kane, who's half Irish by the way, his dad is from the west of Ireland. He could have played for Ireland. Harry Kane had been brilliant the whole few weeks. England are about to play a semi-final of the World Cup and I put a message out wishing them luck. And I genuinely thought, you know what, this has been a great experience. I've enjoyed it. And all these hard men, English hooligans, none of them were in Russia. That was the thing that made me laugh. All these tough men giving you grief from their keyboards around their mammy's houses in Birmingham or wherever. <laughs> you know, none of them were tough enough to actually go to Russia and support their team. So they're all chipping in abuse on Twitter. And then uh, after I put out a good luck message to the England team, I started getting grief from Irish people. I thought, I can't win here. But... Um, Look, it is what it is. I'm proud. I will never change my accent. I will never have any other passport than an Irish passport. And to my dying breath, I will be a very proud Wexford man. Um, why did you leave Sky? So I kind of reached the end of the road. My marathon was run and I got to the stage where I saw people getting opportunities who, and I, this probably sounds very big headed and best to look to them, but they weren't better than me. They weren't smarter than me couldn't speak any languages. I didn't feel they had any contribution to make that I couldn't make. And there was a common thread. They were all British. And I said to someone one day, I said, well, you know, what's happening here? And they said, you do know what the B in B Sky B stands for. And I said, uh, British. And they said, join up the dots. And that got me thinking. And I looked around and I thought, look, 17 years, I've done everything here. I'm not going to get my own show anytime soon. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to branch out. And I'd always had to ask permission. That Sky's quite a controlling regime. So talking to you, for example, I would have to ask permission to do a podcast with someone else. If I was asked to write an article for a newspaper or a magazine, that would have to be cleared as well. And I just thought, you know what, enough people always want me on their shows or want me to make a contribution or appear on a documentary or whatever. I thought, you know what? I want to go and see what's out there for me. And now I've got my own TV show, 260 million viewers worldwide. So I guess it's worked out. And tell me about TRT, Turkish Radio and Television. This is kind of their version of the World Service. Yeah, so TRT World goes to 190 countries around the globe. And I was contacted earlier in 2023 to see if I would go and work in Istanbul and present rolling coverage of the Turkish presidential elections, which I did. And I went in April. I'd never been to Istanbul before, and I was blown away by the city, like stunningly beautiful city, 
history, culture, heritage, the Bosphorus, and it straddles two continents, you know, Asia and Europe. And, you know, a history, a real history, a deep history, literature, poetry, music, sport, culture. And I just immersed myself in it. I didn't have a word of Turkish, uh, but I started picking it up. And I'm learning the language now. I'm not going to say I'm fluent, but uh, it's a beautiful language. They're beautiful people and I'm loving life. Was there a sense, though, that I mean, I think it is a state broadcaster, if I'm right, um, TRT, um, and it's not necessarily a bastion of liberality or freedom of speech over there in Turkey. So did you find yourself or do you find yourself constrained in how you go about your work? Well, I'd have to differ with that, Sean. I think I've never had anyone tell me not to say this, not to say that. It is my show. I say what I want. I have whatever guests I want on the show. I choose the topics. And in terms of free speech, I mean, the elections were fairly contested. There's a vibrant political scene there. Everyone has their opinion. And I have to say, Istanbul is a beautiful, safe city. Obviously, it's not the capital. Ankara is. But I've had absolutely no problem whatsoever. And and trust me, you've heard me speak long enough now. I have my opinions. Nobody, but nobody from the head of Sky to anyone else tells me what to do. What do and you th- I say what I want. What do you think of President Erdogan so? So I've seen him around a couple of times, actually. I'd love to interview him. I saw him in London one day in the street randomly as I was walking through Westminster. And I also saw him the night before the elections uh, as he was going to pray at a mosque uh, down by the the Sultan Ahmet Mosque, it's called, but he was going to Hagia Sophia Mosque. Turkey is celebrating its centenary, 100 years of the Turkish Republic. And one man has been in charge for 20 of those 100 years. So again, going back to resilience, you know, this is a man who, my reading of it, never stops. He's busy every day. He is always reaching out to world leaders and talking and contributing. And I'm genuinely fascinated by him. Uh, Were you born with something of a hard neck or did you have to just develop that? I think the hard neck, look, my father's from Longford, from a farming community in North County Longford. And his family story is absolutely mind-boggling. It could fill about six podcasts and maybe one day I'll, I'll make it. But there is a strain of resilience in my family. Um, I, don't want to, I don't want to delve too much into my family's past, but my grandmother had a terrible accident a few weeks after she gave birth to my dad in September 1947. She fell into a fire in the farm homestead, the farmstead in North County Longford. Bridget Brady was her name. That was my grandmother, Bridgie. She fell into the fire and my dad landed. He was an infant baby. He landed on the hearth of the fireplace. And my grandmother had terrible burns to her face and her hands. And she went away for a long time for treatment and she lived her life uh, badly disfigured, badly burnt. My dad was given to her sister Maggie to be brought up nine or 10 miles down the road. And he had a wonderful life with his aunt and uncle. And I think an awful lot of people nowadays need to toughen up. My grandmother went through her life with terrible burns injuries. And not once, Sean, did I hear that woman complain. Not once did I hear a bad word or a swear word out of her mouth. She lived on the farm. She had her chickens. She brought up her children. She lived an amazing life. And you think of how much she was robbed of. A split second, taking ill, fainting and ending up face first into a fire. 
um, that level of resilience that people can find at the toughest, darkest moments of their life. Sometimes I just think what my grandmother went through, you know, doing a 16, 17 hour day being on TV doesn't even touch the sides. And when you are running a marathon or hitting a wall, do you draw inspiration from your family background, from what happened to your granny? Yeah, completely. Because I just think, how blessed am I to be doing this? You know, there was a race that um, still haunts me, really. That was the Arctic Ice Ultra in northern Sweden. Uh, five days, 250 kilometres. So it was 50 kilometres a day. And I only got the first stage done. Uh, my snowshoes that I was running in broke. And it got down to minus 40 Celsius at the finishing line. And again, you got your food in a rucksack. And I remember thinking the northern lights came out and it was so cold. Honestly, Sean, if you spat, it was like a golf ball by the time it hit the ground, frozen solid. It was so cold and couldn't feel my fingers, couldn't feel my toes. Got the first stage done. A couple of more experienced runners than me had hypothermia. And they were pulling out. My snowshoes broke. And I thought, this is God's way of telling me to just kind of leave this now. We didn't get a medal, but I've actually commissioned a, a fantastic artist down in Wexford. Cahill is his name. He drinks in Marty B's pub in Killoran, who's a friend of mine. He is making his medals. And I saw a draft last night, the first one he's carved. It's a map of Sweden. And me and the two English fellas, Dave and Simon, um, next time I see them, they'll be getting a medal from County Wexford Wood of our experience in the Arctic. But you're right, Sean, you know, you, when you find tough times in life, tough times don't last, tough people do. And when you say, you know, you think people need to toughen up, I mean, wh what are you getting at there? Is it the way youngsters have everything done for them or what is it? Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, Sean, the happiest children I've ever met was when I was running across Kenya and I was going through a village one day. Believe it or not, the Swahili word for go is enda. So I'm running through this village in Kenya. All these children come out and they're all shouting, and that, and that. And I thought, holy Jesus, this is amazing. And I stopped to talk to these kids and I gave them a few sweets that I had in my bag, energy sweets. And they bounced around and they're, you know, just so happy. And I thought, I'll get a selfie with these kids. They'd never seen a mobile phone before. I, they genuinely hadn't seen themselves in a mirror. And they couldn't believe that I had this little thing in my hand that I could turn around and show them themselves. And I remember thinking, all these kids nowadays that have everything and you say hello to kids in the street or whatever, they don't lift their eyes off a mobile phone or they've got their earbuds in or whatever. They're listening to music or they're on TikTok. Get off social media, get out, run, look around you, breathe in fresh air and just be glad that you can do it. There was a particular moment uh, or time quite recently and uh, when you had to rely and draw on all of your resilience and that was when you got COVID. Yeah, that wasn't good. So that was a dark time, really. Um, I gave a couple of interviews at the start because I was so worried about what this virus was doing to my body and I had a reasonable level of fitness. And I ended up flat on my back and I missed seven weeks of work. And my daughter was helping me go to the bathroom. I eventually got enough strength to leave the bed and I would make a point of going down to the back garden and just sitting and watching the flowers and listening to bumblebees. And that became a highlight of the day to get out of bed and to walk down those stairs. My heart used to have palpitations. My breath, I just couldn't catch a breath. And as I say, you know, you go to some dark places in your mind. And I thought, I remember being in the bed and I just thought, if God gets me through this and I get running again, I am going to smash marathons. 
And that was the end of June 21. Took seven weeks out of my life. I got training again. I started to walk. One kilometer turned into five, five turned back into 10. And then I ran the London Marathon. I think I ran 336 or 338. And that was very emotional, you know, that year, October, to get to the finishing line in London. So from getting COVID in the first place to running that marathon and all that you had to endure and all the uncertainty was what, about three months? Yes. So I went from not being genuinely not being able to walk and going to the bathroom, looking in the mirror. And my mother used to be a nurse. My mother's a retired psychiatric nurse. She'd ring every day and she'd say, any improvement? And for weeks on end, there was no improvement. And, you know, it chips away at your soul a little bit. Like, you know, and, and look, everyone's moved on from COVID and I, I don't really like talking about it anymore. But you look in a mirror and when there's no improvement, there was no medication. I'd had one shot of a vaccine at that stage. And I think that certainly helped. But, you know, you get sick if you get bronchitis or if you've got a flu or something, you can get antibiotics. There was nothing they could give you. So I remember just thinking, how does this get better? And thank God I shook it off and off we went. As part of getting and maintaining a healthy lifestyle, I mean, are you very careful about things like food and drink? So I enjoy pints. Look, I, I don't live a monastic existence. You know, people will listen to this, Sean, and think this guy's a total hypocrite talking about fitness. I've seen him in pubs having a drink. I've seen him out having a jar. Yes, I, I enjoy my life. Um, I would say I try not to drink at least four nights a week. And I, I enjoy pints of German pills and... <laughs> Italian red, don't touch spirits at all. But healthy living, yeah, you know, I think your body will put out what you put into it. So, uh, yeah, I, I just I just love life, Sean, and I, I hope it continues. And it's clear from the very outside of this conversation how you described about breaking down your day or breaking down a marathon into small chunks and seeing what's what's achievable. That you, you, you seem, you come across to me anyway, Enda, as a really driven kind of a person. How difficult are you to live and work with? My wife would probably say very difficult because I probably don't want to upset my wife here, but I will get an idea and she's always the one who puts the pin in the balloon and explains why that idea won't fly to the moon. And I always think, no, this will absolutely work. So the case point in example would be deciding that I could run 250 kilometers in sub-zero temperatures across the Arctic. And in all honesty, the preparation and the planning for that could have been a lot better. Um, but she's going to get upset now. But I will go back to the Arctic. I will finish that race again in the next couple of years. And it will be a beautiful moment across the finishing line. So I would say, am I a difficult person to live with? I think some people can't handle energy and positivity. And look, that's their lookout. When you think about your plans, and obviously you've got a lot of them and you're doing a lot of planning, not one, but two marathons in Paris next year at least. Fingers crossed. I'm definitely running on April the 7th in the Paris Marathon itself. And then there is the Olympic night marathon later in the year once the games are up and running. But uh, look, I want to go and see as many places as possible. There's a marathon every weekend if you look hard enough, Sean. So how many would you hope to do next year? I mean, do you hope to get to 100? You're, you're on the verge of doing your 50th. I mean, do you have a, a long-term ambition? 100 is the plan. I'll retire at 100 marathon medals. I don't know where that will be or when it'll be or if God gives me the time to do it. But if I hit six or seven a year, 
basically I think I'll have 100 done by the time I'm 55 and I'm, I'm just 48 now just gone I think you're good for at least 125 but that's just <laughs> me talking to you from a warm studio in Dublin and you, you're the guy who has to venture out into the cold air of London Ender Brady it's been an absolute joy uh, and fascinating conversation great to meet and talk to you again thank you for your time thank you for your insights Sean an absolute pleasure and I'm humbled that you have me on insights thank you <laughs> To hear more in this series, go to rte.ie forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.